Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode. Man, it feels weird to say that. Yeah. Of the Phil Krause Survival Podcast. You know Heather Kaiser, like I just podcasted her. You're going to hear the ads for this thing, but you know how she changed and turned her life around? What'd she do? She listened to me and you on a podcast. No shit. Isn't that she, weird? No, well, she listened to you. No, no, no. She mentioned your name <laughs> like 10 times. I was oh, like, I nice. get it. George was part of that in small increments. I do my little thing. That's all. Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, it, it, it's really cool to hear Heather's story. Mm -hmm. West Point grad, uh, retired major, intel officer. She was at the Pentagon. And she did Humit. She did SIGINT. And you would never know. And she runs intelligence for American contingency. Yeah, you would never know. So suck it. She doesn't even say anything about it. All these it. dudes are like, oh, this is the information. Oh, I can't get better. I'm like, uh, that's the best information you're ever going to get. Um, man, oh. that's really cool. Um, so what's been going on in your life, George? You know, uh, just growing the company, getting everything set up. We got this new... I don't know. Would you call it here? Like the City Clubhouse Office. here, up in here. The <laughs> it's know? cool. We've we've done a lot of good in this space. Yes, and it actually have. looks good. Yeah, no. Um, it's coming together. Um, I just did a podcast with Black Rifle Coffee Company with Evan Hafer on his on his actually personal one, which is called. Oh, nice. What's that called? Oh, you did it before, didn't you? Or yeah. was it? No, that was no, a that was one. a different one. Damn, I don't even know what it's called. Yeah, it's like something something. Oh my god, I'm horrible. <laughs> Did somebody look Just that up? Google it. Oh my gosh. Google it. Phone with me. I'm going to do some paid ads, man. So we're sponsored by killcliff.com. Look, Killcliff has been with us for years. We, we support Killcliff and they support us. Killcliff is an energy drink company that makes natural energy drinks. Uh, my favorite happens to be the CBD now. Oh, it's, CBD line is good. They have four of them now. They have a ooh. strawberry lemonade one. Okay, so here's the question. Why don't we have it's, they're, they're, a refrigerator they're coming, full of Killcliff? They're, they're coming because you have people in this company that likes to drink them five or six throughout the day and you know, sharing is caring. So are you, you know, looking at yourself in your iPhone? No, here? not me, man. Not um, me. If you use survival one zero, you could have actually save 10% uh, off and you can order kill cliff from killcliff.com. That's survival one zero. Also our podcast is sponsored by triarchsystems.com. That's a hard word. Triarch what is systems. it? What is a triarch? <laughs> <laughs> I love you, Chris and the team, Jimmy. Triarch system is T R I A R C. Is it is that like a Navy SEAL thing? Wasn't he Navy SEAL? No, he wasn't. Trident? No. <laughs> no. What was he? It's, why would you think that's Trident? Triarch? Maybe they had to try. I don't know. Well, They're trying to figure it out. Arc is obviously like the arc of something, the bending of something, and then mm -hmm. Tri is three. Three, so. three bend systems. It's triarchsystems.com. <laughs> you guys can use Philcraft to save uh, 5% on checkout. Um, triarchsystems.com provides custom weapons, pistols, carbines, rifles. And let me let me give you a little secret about uh, what's going on in the industry right now. You can't get manufactured guns from anywhere. Nope. But you you know what you can get? You can get a Tri-11 maybe. <laughs> I don't know, man, you this. tell me. Make eye contact with me, man. You got, we gotta be synced. <laughs> um, you can get custom guns. Oh, okay. From nice. triarcsystems.com. Philcraft, one word, saves you 5% on any build. You don't mm. have to make eye contact with me. I love it now. Now you're making it weird, man. You're making it weird. Also, this podcast is sponsored by kchighlights.com. That's K-C-H-I-L-I-T-E-S. Look, we've been doing mobility in the overland off-road space for years now. KC Highlights provides the best off-road off -road lights in the industry. If you guys have seen my big old Dodge 2500, I'm looking at it through the window right now. It's mm -hmm. so beautiful. What are you going to say? I'm just saying, Casey Highlights, how long have they been around? Uh, since uh, 1864. They yeah. started right after the Civil War. <laughs> They've been around for 50 years. Yeah, a long time. I mean, that's that shows you know their brand loyalty, that they make good equipment, and they last. So Yeah, they're iconic. Yeah, um, why not? Go CaseyHighlights.com and use Philcraft, one word, to save 10% on your next order. They even have handheld everyday carry lights, which yeah. is really cool. All right, guys, I'm going to throw a, a big shout out to a couple companies that I appreciate and love. One of them's BCM. There's no code because they Man. sold out of every gun they have. But Bravo Company Manufacturing has been a big supporter of us. Big shout out to Paul Buffoni, John yeah. Chang. Also, AT Overland. I have the AT Overland Summit on my truck. If you're into overlanding and off-roading, make sure you check out ATOverland.com. Um, and AT Overland is in Prescott, Arizona, our old hometown. Mm -hmm. um, but you could use that 
uh, summit to get your next outdoor adventure because look, COVID's not going away, man. No. Hit hit the high get ground. Get outside. Get outside. Hey, I get the opportunity to catch up with Heather Kaiser. Uh, I, I framed her out in the beginning, but it's look, she's uh, the American contingency intelligence officer that provides open source information, distills it down into intelligence that that helps you navigate your force protection every single day. Uh, that's a courtesy of AmericanContingency.locals.com. Make sure you check it out and join and become a member. Here we go. Heather, are you ready for this? I'm ready. Okay, we're on it. What's up? <clears throat> I'm just enjoying Heber City. It's beautiful. Have you ever been to Heber City? No. Have you ever been to Salt Lake City? Yes. Oh, what'd you go to Salt Lake for? Um, some training, uh, visiting. It's just an, It was nearby state when I was in high school, so I had some trips up there. You grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, right? I was there for part of my growing up. My parents were both in the military, so I spent the rest of high school, all, high school and a little bit of middle school there. So we were kind of all over the place, but that's where I say I'm from. What's your ethnicity? Well, my, I'm, I'm technically Caucasian. My mom's- You don't look white though. Oh, well, my mom's Sicilian. I think that's where people Italian. get confused. Yeah, they get confused. Yeah. You hear that? Yes. Incoming. That is airplanes. <laughs> wow, that's that's a pretty loud plane. That was like a P, like an older plane. Um, Heber City is beautiful. It's one of my favorite places because it's tucked back. I like saying that. And um, it's away from the city that's Salt Lake. I'm not a fan of Salt Lake. I, it's okay. <laughs> Salt Lake's okay. You like Salt Lake? I like the Southwest. I'm a fan of the Southwest. So Arizona, Nevada, Colorado, Colorado, Texas, Texas, New Mexico, Utah for sure. Yeah. And Utah. Yeah. Yeah. I think Utah is my favorite because the diversification of geography mm -hmm. and geology, geography and geology, geology yeah. and geography. <laughs> so uh, Moab, you could be in Moab camping under the stars with no trees. And then you could be in Park City in the mountains in the trees skiing in the same day. I mean, it's, it's beautiful from south to north. You didn't get nothing for me on that? Oh, no, I, I'm, not, I'm a huge fan of the Southwest. I'll, and I'll include a little bit of California in there, although I have some mixed feelings about living in California. Um, I'd include like Yosemite is a huge, oh, yeah, huge, huge fan of Yosemite, huge fan of Bryce Canyon. Um, I love Bryce the, Canyon. The, what about Joshua Tree? I haven't been there in years. It's kind of just like a desert and a couple of Joshua trees, which are barren. It's its own. It's beautiful in its own way. Yep. Um, a lot of people don't know who you are or what you do. So let's talk about that. You, okay. you are American contingencies, um, Intel. That's it. Like the period. Cause there is no, I mean, we have volunteers, but you moderate, <clears throat> curate, um, and disseminate all things that are information and intelligence. How has that been for you? Um, it's been, it's been good. I feel like it's, um, I felt compelled to be a part of it just because of everything that was going on um, since the George Floyd riots started in the beginning of the year. And I feel like it's, it's been something that was productive, so I wanted to be a part of it. Um, you know, we do, we do obviously more than just the intel, but we, we do try to um, also you know, moderate the other things that are going on with the page, um, with the, the few of us that, that work there. Um, but I, I think, um, staying on top of everything that's going on, it kind of feels like I'm going back to what I used to do with Intel. Cause I was Intel in the military and that familiarity feels good. Um, I never thought I would do that again. After I left the military, I thought I was going to do art and never touch Intel again, but obviously that's not the case. Mm -hmm. So well, you're real, you're obviously really good at it. I mean, what I want to know is you have a military background, which we'll talk about in a minute, but you are very good at this thing that we're doing in, in Amcon. Um, what kind of correlations can you make between military intelligence collection and the civilian side of it? And what are those challenges? 
Well, I'd say the things that are the same, it, there's a lot when, when you're looking at open source intelligence, right? Because we're not, I'm not doing collection from a sense of human or SIGINT per se, but um, the things that are, that are similar is the open source intelligence, gathering information, looking at all the different areas where I can gain information, people that might be able to provide me with additional information and who I can get access to that might, you know, be able to share useful knowledge. Um, so looking at it from that perspective, knowing the right sources um, to get breaking news, to get breaking information. Surprisingly for that, it's been Twitter. So um, for a lot of the things that are going on, I have to go through on that social media network, but then I go directly to the source to gain access to the information so I can properly filter it and say, okay, what's actually going on? Because I don't use mainstream media as my source of news. Um, but that those similarities are very similar to me reading reports from maybe being when I was in Iraq or Afghanistan, reading reports from maybe the human terrain team or one of the other teams that's in another province and see like what's the atmospherics of what's going on. The great benefit of doing this in the United States is I'm from the United States and I've lived in a lot of the states. So, um, and I've been to a lot of these places. So uh, that's something that I didn't have in Iraq and Afghanistan. I wasn't from there, but I'm, this is our own turf. So it's a lot easier. Um, the challenge- because you have a lot of atmospherics of things that you could better understand to validate that credible source or to make that credible, to make that credible. Oh, well, I think it's, it's, um, a lot of things, right? Because when you're, when you're doing intelligence in a foreign country, that's not my backyard. I have to make sure that I'm understanding what is, what is the local colloquialisms? What does it mean in this area if somebody's talking about, you know, a specific um, word or if they're using, you know, um, just slang or something like that? And I wouldn't know that unless I was there for a long time or if somebody told me. And so I have to like learn over time unless I go back over and over again and I get really familiar with that specific area. But in the United States, I do have familiarity with like some of the ways that things work across the different you know cities and states. Um, but as far as how things operate, you know, it's it's just a little bit different in that regard because it's our own country. And so you know, I speak the language. I I've lived in a lot of these different places I, because my parents were both military. I've lived in a lot of these states, um, and I have that understanding that I wouldn't have in Iraq or Afghanistan. What's the mission of AMCON? according to you in the realm of information and why? Well, I think when we look at self-reliance and readiness, um, you know, that's overall what we're trying to achieve is AMCON and building the community and the pillars that you've laid out for us and trying to, you know, be able to be prepared in a situation where something might go awry. But in regards to information, I think it's really trying to draw awareness to the fact that you can't you can't rely on other people for information. You have to kind of, well, if you're going to rely on other people for information, you need to find out who you can actually go to for that information, um, how you can get the most reliable information and how you can use it to your benefit. Right now we're living in a situation where there are riots going on in certain cities on a regular basis, and this is not making it into the mainstream yeah. news. If you want to know about it, you might have to go through uh, social media to figure that out. We're doing that on the intel side of things. We're trying to provide that information. We may miss something because you know there's there's so many different states, and we only have so many intel volunteer intel analysts. Um, but to encourage you to look at what do I need to know so that I can be prepared in the event that there is a rally or there is an event that is happening in my city and state, what's the typical tactics that I would see there and what do I need to know so that I can be optimally safe in those circumstances? Because we're in an environment now where that's happening all the time. It, that whole thing, that, I mean, the way you lay that out is perfect because it, one, it reminds me of things that we've experienced at war, but also, um, the voids that we faced outside of the war. Mm -hmm. Like Libya for me was a perfect example of kind of the explanation just gave, which is um, there's bits of information that are coming out that are that is very selective based on the narrative or the agenda um, or, or uh, kind of the manipulation that I wanna create depending on my objective. And so if I'm a, for example, uh, the State Department did this in Libya, when I was getting ready to deploy to Libya before September 11th of 2012, 
my 18 Fox, my special forces um, intelligence officer, we'll just call him Intel guy. Uh, the Intel guy was basically running around getting information from reliable sources, credible sources for information that weren't politicized. And so that information then could be distilled down to intelligence, which we know drives operations. And then we were able to make decisions in training, uh, equipment and preparation mm -hmm. to be able to um, ensure that when we hit the ground, we were prepared to face whatever it was we were going to face. A great example of that would be um, we, we heard that there are attacking specific vehicles that look like de Department of State or diplomatic plated vehicles. So we made the request that we wanted uh, non-standard vehicles. We wanted vehicles that didn't have uh, diplomatic plates, which are typically red, um, broadcasting who we were, and that would allow us to roll around and at least reduce risk. So we did that. We got all that stuff lined out. Well, if you talk to the State Department, they had no idea because politically they wanted to decrease the force protection um, because they wanted to paint a picture that everything was um, fine and dandy in that country. And we know how that turned down. I mean, um, tragically, four men um, from the U.S. government were killed, including two global response staff officers and the ambassador of Libya, who was loved and respected by many, including the Libyans. So. When we look at information that's distilled down into intelligence, the idea is not to drive you to do an operation. It's to drive you to take force protection measures, which might just be, I'm not going to take my normal route. I'm going to avoid that area at all cost. I'm going to be more self-reliant at providing my own med because now I know police aren't going to respond in this specific area. And I don't think they're like a lot of people have looked at us like we're malice or that we're a militia mm -hmm. or that we're radical. And I actually think if they understood who you were and understood who I was, um, and uh, as far as our intelligence, um, our aptitude, but also our experiences, they would go, man, these people are just normal people who have uh, exceptional backgrounds specific to this requirement or need, and they're just trying to do good for people. Um, you started your career by going to a college called West Point. I did. Um, that's super amazing because um, I've not, I've haven't been the biggest fan of specific officers because mm -hmm. I've seen how they've navigated the system and I've experienced many bad cases of them. But for the most part, my team leader, even um, when I was a team sergeant, my team leader, was a West Pointer and his name was Craig and he was super squared away. And all the West Pointers that I know that I've worked with in special operations were the best officers. Um, how was that? Number one, how did you get into West Point? Was it something that you wanted to do and how was your experience? Well, I wanted to join the military probably, oh gosh. I mean, I was a GI Joe fan going way back. If we're going to go old school, um, being in the military was something I wanted to do. So I don't know that that's a very typical thing for most little girls, but I kind of grew up thinking, well, I, I want to go into the military and you have to remember like, I'm, so I'm, a, I'm almost 37. Um, at that time there wasn't that many opportunities for women. So as I was getting older, I was trying to look at what could I possibly do? How could I go about this military thing and do something and be the most effective and be the best at it and be the most effective and, and be the most useful to the military? And it's not and that's not to say that there's there's no jobs that are enlisted that aren't um, good because there's there's definitely and there was even a situation where I thought I was going to get kicked out and I had a, I had a medic. Uh, contract ready to go. Um, but, um, at that time I was like, well, I think maybe, maybe for me, if I, if I go officer and I try to go Intel, that might be the best route where I can make the, the biggest difference. And, um, so I, I, I was involved with a junior ROTC in high school a Marine Corps junior ROTC. I had this amazing, um, instructor. I, I was on a shooting team in high school and, uh, I don't even know if they still do that. Honestly, I think they do in New Mexico, but, um, 
it, it's it, rare nowadays. Yeah, yeah. It, it was incredible. It changed my life. I loved it. Um, so this, do you still shoot now? Yeah, I do. I, well, awesome. obviously not like right now because ammo is short and yeah. it's, you can't really get to any open ranges. But I mean, I love shooting rifle. It's like my bread and butter. I love it. Um, but I started doing that in high school. But uh, so I, I obviously had to be the kind of person that to get into an academy, you're supposed to be well-rounded and all these things. And so, um, I got into the academy, like I got into the, the academies and I was trying to figure out which one, um, should I try to go to? Um, and I picked West Point because you had options. So they had multiple. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Which so ones? I, w- I got into the Naval Academy and the Air Force Academy and West Point. And I, Whoa. I decided on West Point because of it being a leadership institution. Um, and somebody had said this to me once and I apologize to all of my friends that I know that went to other academies. This is not a dog on you. Um, that if you go to the Air Force and Naval Academies, they have statues to objects. But if you go to West Point, they have statues to people. And that's because it's a leadership institution. Really cool. And um, so that kind of set my mind straight. And I was like, all right, that's where I want to go. And um, so I went there and it was really hard. I'm terrible at academics. Absolutely awful. Um, I mean, I I was doing well in my high school, but I got there and I fell on my face. I ended up doing five years there instead of four. I flunked uh, math, the same math class, two times. And the third time I got a C minus. Um, I had to take summer school every year. It was, it was awful. The best thing that I did when I was there was a combat weapons team. Um, I was on a shooting team. It was absolutely incredible. It was one of the best things that that school has to offer. If if you are at West Point right now and you are not on the combat weapons team, I don't know what's wrong (laughs) with you. Um, I met my, I met one of my best mentors. There was a Ranger regiment guy named Jose Gordon. I'm going to do a name drop because he's amazing. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was, that was incredible. And everything you you get, what you, you get, what you put, what you get out of something is what you put into it. So I wasn't great at academics. I had to spend a lot of time in the library, but I really focused on the military aspect of it. Like, okay, this is my training. I'm supposed to be the best thing that I possibly can coming out of here. I'm going to talk to all the NCOs I can. I'm going to get as much knowledge as I possibly can. I'm going to try out for everything. I'm going to, I'm going to do everything I possibly can to try and be the best thing that I can coming out because I, I didn't enlist beforehand and I kind of wish I had. Um, you know, and, uh, and, and it turned out to be a really great experience. And I, I wasn't there to, to, to come out and be in the West Point club and say, Hey, everybody, I'm a West Pointer. Like, and there are some people that do that. Um, but my purpose of going there wasn't for that. It was to, to be the best thing I could coming out of there. And so I, I feel like I maximized my, um, experience in that way. And I was very thankful for that. When you, when you're finishing your last fifth year in this case. My fifth year. Wow, um, that was rough. Um, you're in this and you know you're preparing to enter into the military at a time of war. Mm-hmm. Um, you graduated in 08? Seven. Oh, seven. seven. Okay, so 07, when I was in 07, we killed more bad guys in 07 than had probably the history, well, besides Syria, the history of at least the war in Iraq was 07, was the, the prime because Al Qaeda, we didn't have a new strategy. We, we just implemented a new strategy in the beginning of 06. And on the Joint Special Operations Command side on JSOC, it was um, strategy through attrition. Mm-hmm. Kill as many of them as we can, capture the ones that we capture, and then turn and burn. I mean, we were doing two, at a minimum, we were hitting a target every night every action arm in the command. And then some nights I've hit three targets in one night, like not even like the next door, like three separate different distinct places. So you know you're going to war. Mm -hmm. What was that like when you graduated? I'm assuming it was like a, you you throw whatever the thing is in the air. And then you're like, okay, it's time to go to work. How was that experience? Well, I knew the whole time, right? Because, the way that they structured the program there, um, they mentally prepare you. You do math, the math equations are all based on how much JP8 do I need for this? You know, it's like it, you're having conversations. I had professors that had already deployed. They, they made time to talk about the deployments. It was a huge heavy focus was like, hey, um, you're getting ready to go 
out to war like this is not a you know this is not like you're just coming here for fun you're getting ready to go out as soon as you leave i had p- previous people that i knew while i was at school that died while i was still at the academy they had wow. they, they had graduated they graduated and they died while i was um at school and so that was a very sobering experience but obviously you know keeps it real for you because um you know, I, I had a, a number of people that that happened with, and uh, it was just very, I mean, obviously it just keeps you like in touch with what's going on. So um, I, I wanted to make sure that, okay, that I'm very serious about what I'm doing. I want to make sure I get the branch that I want to go and that I'm, I'm ready and trained. And I felt like every day was kind of like, okay, I'm ready to fight terrorism. Like, what have I done today to like get up and get ready? Like, did I run enough? Did I do enough pull-ups? Like, am I ready to go like be everything I can be? And obviously it doesn't go that fast when you get to your first unit, but you get into that mentality and you just kind of eat, sleep, drink military. So I, I, I was very glad to leave by the time I had been there for five years, but, um, you know, getting to my first unit, they had just gotten back and we had a train up and then we went to Iraq. So, um, I mean, that's what I felt like I needed to do. I felt like I had joined the military and it was a time of war. So, you know, I needed to be there and do that. And I felt like I was serving my obligation. What year, what you so you went to your first trip at 08? My first, oh, so we did a train up. Uh, oh man, and I, now you're asking me the hard questions. What year did that happen? Um, so it was 09, so I was there 09, 10, was it? Yeah, yeah, we left in uh, April of 09 and came back in 10. Okay. Yeah. So, and what, what um, I mean, it doesn't really matter, but what unit were you with? Um, uh, so that one was uh, fourth, Br- fourth Brigade Combat Team, First Cav, four first, one, cav. first one, four, was, four one Cav. Uh, so I was in Balad, I think nine, I was in Balad. Um, how was that experience for you just going to your first unit and how does it work for us too, for um, intelligence officers? How does that how does that map out for you? Well, I was so lucky. I had an SF battalion commander, and I just like he was uh, he was just uh, he was amazing. And um, we were in a special brigade combat team, or yeah, uh, we were in a STB. So um, we were yeah, that's a lieutenant colonel, right? Yeah, lieutenant colonel, and he just was all about having the MI assets do their thing. So I was actually a platoon leader for SIGINT and we did all the train ups that Ooh. were we you know, there's like certain gates that you're supposed to meet prior to a train up or prior to a deployment. We met all of our gates. We we were actually embedded with the maneuver units um, for doing strike force missions. Um, in we, SIGINT. Yes. Um, because we were we were uh, uh, well, I mean, it doesn't really matter what the systems are named now, but um, we were we, we were the kind of team that was like attached to a maneuver unit. And we would help them find the target and then attack the target, you know. And yeah. um, so um, we had a, a huge, wonderful train up. So I, I had we had great relationships with our maneuver units. Um, they were really welcoming, especially with the cab units that we worked with. Um, and, and, s- and for people who listen to this, uh, SIGINT signal intelligence, and it has to do with um, any electronic forms of communication that could be tracked. And typically I think the term is uh, directionally fine. So DF. So mm-hmm. um, all the SIGINT guys that I've worked with were right uh, with us, if not in front of us sometimes, directionally finding the targets, mm-hmm. the bad guys. And then um, we were prosecuting the targets. Yeah. So that was really cool. So you got in the heat of things immediately. Yeah. So everything was, I mean, we did, we had a great, great working up like for the deployment what happened was we had a sofa the sofa agreement changed when we got in country so the way that we were aligned with the units um shifted and so we didn't get to do what we had trained to do just because of the sofa agreement um and then I moved out of my position to, um, they made an exception for me, exception to policy. I went and served as an assistant S2 at a, a cab squadron, which at the time women weren't allowed to do that, but they fudged some stuff on the MTO so that I could be out there. What, what do you mean? That- at, the, at the time, women weren't allowed technically to be, um, technically allowed to be at maneuver units as an S2 position because I was considered a frontline combat arms position is like, let's, let's digress on this portion right here because it's important to talk about what, well, how do you feel looking at the military as you got out and the transition of them getting over some obstacles? I mean, not a lot uh, in your time frame but getting over some obstacles of, of allowing women to serve in combat roles um, on the front line. I think that 
I'm, I'm very happy for the women who are able to do it now. I think it's a wonderful opportunity because there's women that really want to do it. And, and I know that there's arguments on every side about, you know, women shouldn't be doing this or women, you know, they disrupt the operations. And, you know, I, I think it's, everybody's different and some people bring some really great things to the table and some people will really add to the mission. And I think that that, if, if that's what's happening, then there's no reason to hold those people back. And I'm, I'm so happy to see that there's, there's a woman going through the Q course and I'm happy to see the women that have gone through ranger school. I've spoken with Lisa Jaster, absolutely admire her. I love it when I see her put a ranger sweatshirt on, you know, I, I, you know, for me personally, I wish that I could have been a little bit further along in that timeline of when things were changing. Um, but, you know, for what the future holds, I'm happy for what, what the transition has happened. I'm very thankful for the future so that other people can do it. Yeah, I was with um, Andy Stump recently, and we were talking about um, Jessica Lynch and how polarizing that was of an issue in both her getting captured and rolled up and then people figuring out after she was rescued, which uh, Andy was on that rescue, uh, that she didn't actually do the things that she was awarded her silver star for. Like they said that she was, she fought and it was a heroic thing, but Jessica um, openly admits that wasn't the case. And so that's not Jessica's fault. That's the military system's fault for doing that to her, whether it was good intent intended or not. One of the problems that I've seen is this, uh, divisiveness when it comes to females mm -hmm. in any co uh, capacity or role. I've worked with women um, in every facet of special operations. And I remember like the, I can't remember her name, and she was a military police officer and she got a silver star during the Iraq invasion. Leanne and Hester. What is it? Leanne Hester. That's yep. awesome. She's a police officer now. Yeah. And she, and she got on the 50 cow and she was like going to work, right? She was getting on, she, she was like fighting. Mm -hmm. And People don't understand that in war, especially insurgencies, there are no definitive conventional, um, there's not a definitive conventional doctrine that's followed that um, underexposes human beings because of sex. If you're 88 Mike, if you're a truck driver, then most often um, in soft skilled MOSs, which it, that's, a, that's a layman's term, it's, um, it's non-combat arms MOSs or specialties, you could be a female. Mm -hmm. But we've seen throughout periods of time during war, especially during the invasion, uh, and even after, uh, as an afterthought, there are many convoys that were being hit mm -hmm. and having to fight their ways, in some, in some cases more than um, conventional combat arms groups, depending on the year, um, they were getting blown up and they were getting shot at every time they went out. And so now it's like the, the idea that you can't learn to fight because your job doesn't require you uh, to do so, to me is negligence. Because yeah. like in the Marine Corps, everybody is a rifleman uh, or a rifle woman because we want everybody to, to be able to fight and defend their lives. And, the, and I, I, it's kind of weird to me even to hear that women or that you couldn't serve in that specific role because a woman could fly an Apache helicopter. Mm -hmm. I mean, Emily, uh, a good friend of mine, um, has killed a lot of bad guys with an Apache and she's directly in harm's way in combat. And so I, it's, it's weird to me because I've, 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 I've appreciated and I've served next to and even lost great women who were with us in special operations for whatever the requirement was, reconnaissance, you know, um, um, reducing signatures, searching mm -hmm. women. Absolutely. And they were there in a specific capacity and role, but they were also willing and, and must have been willing to fight because we were at war. And um, you saw that evolution. It was, it's kind of, ah, it's weird. It's bringing back old memories. I, I do remember those days. You leave Iraq, do you go back home and immediately turn and burn or what was that schedule like? Um, I came back to Iraq, then I went to the career course, and then I went to another unit that was getting ready to go to Afghanistan. Career course is your equivalent of your, um, after you make first lieutenant? Uh, I was cap captain. captain. Okay. Yeah. The advanced course is captain to major. Yeah, after you get captain, the advanced right. course. So, so um, it's the, the captain's career course kind of is the, 
deeper version of examining your specialty and, and doing some more um, training and, and getting better at what you're supposed to know how to do. And um, so we, we did a lot of stuff and it was a six month course. And so after that, um, I went to my well, actually, let me back up. I, we, I went to that, and then I went to Washington State. I was in an ADA unit briefly, and then I transferred about six, seven months into a unit that was going to Afghanistan. ADA's air defense. air defense artillery. Mm-hmm. And then you went to, uh, to Afghanistan. How was that rotation for you? Um, what so year was that? That was twenty. Oh, that was twenty eleven. We left in 2011. We came back in 2012. So that was with 3-2 um, Striker Brigade Combat Team. Um, mm. I was in Human this time, and I was the S2X. Um, human Intelligence. Human Intelligence, and I was the... Intel Special Projects? Uh, or Intel the I managed, I managed all of the human and CI um, teams in the... Counterintelligence. Yeah, hum, human and... NCI. So, um, I got to tell it for the people who are listening. Oh, sorry. I got to stop throwing around those acronyms, but, uh, yeah, it was, I would say that was a really hard deployment. We lost uh, 21 people. Um, we had out of your brigade. Yeah, we lost, uh, I mean, we were in, so we started in, um, Ghazni and we moved to, or sorry, not Ghazni, Zabul. We started in Zabul. We had, I had people in Ghazni, um, but we were in Zabul for just, a, initially the first couple months. And then we moved to, um, actually just down to Panjway, um, in Kandahar, which was very hot. And, um, yeah, it was a, it was rough. I mean, there were a lot of triple amputees, double amputees out of our, our unit and, um, you know, trying to figure out how to, how to help do force protection. I mean, we were trying to come up with tactics to help do force protection and also like how to give all of the teams access to our human teams. Cause I was also the human platoon leader. Um, were you and, in a small Ford operating base? Yeah, we were at, um, uh, Masamgar. Uh, so if anybody knows where that is, it's uh, in the Horn of Panjway. was in the Horn of Panjway. It's not there anymore. It's just on the border of Helmand Province. Um, but uh, it, it was, uh, I learned a lot, but as far as like uh, casualties and injuries go to people, I mean, it was pretty bad. And that, that was, you know, that was very, you know, hard to see, of course. But, um, you know, I, I felt I felt like we did the best we could um, with what we what we had. It seemed like we were strapped for personnel, which was tough. But um, you know, I I, I learned a lot, um, and uh, I, I my best friend actually. I still talk to her every like every day. She was my my my, my NCOIC of that trip. She's my best friend, and uh, she she and I we had a, we had, we went through a lot on that deployment together. We, I was I was in Kunduz and Maza Sharif that year, and it was super active. Like yeah. we, we had dudes shot. We were, I mean, it was it was chaotic. Um, what what was the first? I'm assuming it happened that trip. Trip impactful, um, f- either firefight or tragedy that you remember that kind of changed maybe who you were or who you are. Oh, I can tell you that. That was almost immediately after we got on the ground. We had a green on blue incident. Um, Which is, what's green on blue? So green on blue is when you have a partner force that essentially turns their weapon on friendly forces. And it could be a U.S. forces. It could be, um, you know, maybe it was Romanians. But in this case, it was one of our own. And we had only been on the ground like one week, I think. I I can't remember now how long. We we had just gotten there. And... um, this person got shot and killed, and I remember just, I remember them like taking, we, we all like lined up to watch them take the body, and it was just, uh, I was like, oh wow, you know, like, th- we gotta worry about this too, you know? Um, and the year I was there, green on blue incidents were at its all time high, and so that was also uh, just a really discouraging, because I, I in both places I lived, we lived and partnered with um, all the Afghans, the Afghan army. Well, we, that was your, that was also your responsibility because yeah, I worked with the Afghan human team. Yeah, you're working human intelligence and then counterintelligence, right? And then it's all falling in your lap. How? What are ways that you mitigated that kind of thing? I mean, the, the things that you could talk about. Um, in regards to the threats that like just, um, I mean, as a leader, oh, as a um, combat leader, and then as somebody who's managing that process, what, what did you implement or what I'm, did you, what are I'm, some of the things you did? We had, we made sure that our human guys all had pistols. 
So, I mean, that's one thing. If you're going into a meeting, um, you can't easily draw a rifle on somebody if somebody's going to present a threat to you. So that was one thing. You know, we really wanted to have as much as we were able to um, protection for our guys that were doing human intelligence. Um, so having, I mean, that, that sounds like kind of a silly thing to think about, but it's actually not. I mean, it's like force protection. Like how do I, if I have a guy that's going to go in a room with an, a, an Afghan that could potentially pr present a threat, what is the easiest way to make sure that they can protect themselves? And it's like having an M9. Um, so that was one thing. Um, in regards to other stuff, I, I mean, it was really just always being situationally aware, um, you know, and, and having a buddy team. And, and this is kind of... Uh, I mean, it sounds kind of silly, but it's, it, it is like really important. You know, if you're, if you're going to have a meeting with, uh, a particular individual, you can't always do that, especially with human intelligence, but, you know, having somebody available to be there for you, to pull security, to help you through a situation that could go wrong. Um, so, um, but there were times we had our whole entire mission sh shut down because of a, a green on blue incident that a number of people got shot and killed in, uh, and that was in um, that was in Zabel, in northern Zabel. And then um, we also had the Staff Sergeant Bales incident happened about uh, ten kilometers from where I was at. So that really didn't help operations at all. Bell, he, Bell's the one who left the base and correct. killed a whole bunch of people. Yeah. So what was the what's your take on that? Um, you know, I I it's hard to say like why somebody does what they do. Um, you know, I, I've read the different reasonings behind why he did it. Um, but I don't know that there's ever an excuse for wildly going out and, and shooting anybody up like that. I, I, I can't, I, I understand that there's, there's emotions that happen when you lose somebody in your unit. I, I, I can understand that very well, but, um, you know, his decision impacted and reversed a lot of the work, the hard work that we were trying to do. And so you have to think of the second and third order effects, you know? Um, so I can't, I, I don't think there's ever an excuse for that kind of behavior as much as like somebody might say, man, it would just be so great if we could just like respond and react to this. You know, it, it, he didn't go and kill like a bunch of military aged males. He, he killed some children and women and stuff. So I'm, and, and, and I know that, you know, here I am talking about how, you know, women should be this and women should be that. But when you're looking at Afghan culture, that's taken a very specific way. Um, and uh, I, I think that that was a really bad decision. I, I think as far as I read, I think alcohol was involved. And, and I, I just I can't find any reason in my mind why that would ever be OK. I, I just can't. And I'll never say that that was reasonable. The the trip that you did after that, what what was your career like in moving beyond that? Because obviously, if you're experiencing lots of trauma, like when war becomes real for anybody, mm -hmm. it changes the way we look at everything: our families, our um, homes. Um, sometimes a home doesn't feel like a home. Mm -hmm. um, our situation, and then. Uh, changing our career paths and, and the way we navigate that. Did you have any of those experiences post-war or post-actual uh, feeling com of combat? Yeah, I mean, I definitely felt, um, I felt very much like I needed to have really solid relationships with the people that I cared about. And I, I definitely took m m greater measures to make sure that I told people that I loved them, you know, people probably were like, well, you know, I'd tell my parents I love them randomly. I tell them all the time now because I, I just was always like, well, what if they just don't know and something happens to them? So that mentality followed me. But that was actually after, um, after that point, I, I went and, and, uh, applied to go to a different organization. And, um, I just felt even more compelled to like say, okay, I've done this thing now. I want to go somewhere else and do more let me see how I can do elsewhere. Um, so, you know, that was kind of my mentality. I just wanted to do more. I, I was frustrated that I felt like I couldn't do enough. Um, you know, so that's kind of, I feel like that's kind of been the feeling overall all along being like told, Oh, you can't do that cause you're a female. Well, I'll find a place where I can go and do more. Um, until I'm told I can't do it anymore. So that's, you know, it, Oh man, that that's gotta be hard because, I see so many people who are who are males who aren't trying hard enough 
and then in a role and in, in, in this case capacity of the military and army uh, where they have all the opportunities afforded. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a, when we came in the military, when I came in the military it was be all you could be. Mm-hmm. It, it's a place where you can go in and just do whatever the hell you want. You could be as, you can go as far as you're willing uh, to go. And to be a girl and then a woman who is an officer and a leader who wants to affect more. I mean, I, I, I had a bad time in the military when I couldn't get my guys or myself to be able to do their job, to kill bad guys, to, to, you know, find, fix and finish bad guys. And that destroyed me because I'm like, I mean, I'm making promises to my guys. I'm like, my only job is to get you guys to get in, into the mix and do your job, which are, which are built and programmed to do. And then when I couldn't do that, I felt like it was the end of the road. So you, you were doing everything necessary with, with all the means that you had, including going to you know, specialized units to do so. Uh, we have to gloss over that part. We can't talk about that part. But fast forwarding after the fact, there's a period of time where you get medically retired. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about that? Yeah. So after I did the other thing, I went to the Pentagon and I was working there for a little while. And I was actually, this is before I had my medical stuff. I was trying to go to another location and work somewhere else. And uh, that all fell through for some unknown reason. I think it was because they were rewriting policy for how women could be in different units and how they were applying the new rules. And yeah, that, that was, was about, a big political thing. Yeah. That was going so, on. um, unfortunately I had been, I had gotten through the first gate of, of doing that application and, and then that fell through. So I was, I was working at the Pentagon and the, um, NMCC and, and that was a good experience. I mean, I, I wouldn't say that that's like the highlight of my life, but it was a great experience. Um, at least like trying What's to, that? what was the acronym? The N- national military command center. Um, sorry, I keep forgetting the acronyms, but uh, I worked at the DIA. I was, uh, underneath the DIA, but I was, um, loaned out to the J two. So I got to see kind of like big picture, like what is the intelligence looking at like around the world? And I was assigned to, um, well, I, I did mostly China and North Korea. I was um, the crisis manager for that area, but. So the Defense Intelligence Agency. Yeah. Um, were you stationed at Belvoir? Yeah, we were at Belvoir, mm. but I actually showed up to work every day at the Pentagon. Nice. Um, so that was just a, a really surreal experience, just kind of seeing what everything's like. The um, big picture the, of things. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was really, it makes you have a different understanding of how the world works because it's not just, um, it's not just like, oh, we have to do this mission and why do we have to do it? You know, I was there, I was trying to learn as much as I could and figure out, okay, well, what do we do when we have this kind of crisis happen? If there's a threat or something from a specific country and what would, what would the United States do in that case? So it was, it was a good experience, but, um, yeah, at that, at that time I also ended up having a, a major issue with my, my medical stuff. And I had to, um, I had, I ended up like in, going to like this hospitalization program for like eight months just to deal with some of the stuff I was going on. Um, and then I, I had to slowly get like all the medical stuff sorted out. And that, that was, it was really like a heartbreaking thing for me because I, um, you know, I, I had wanted to do so many things in the military and I felt like I just hadn't really gotten to do it. So, um, I ended up doing this, I had to go through this med board and I got med boarded out. Um, which was, that was also very, like, very sad and depressing. Um, but you know, whatever, it's just the way the cookie crumbles. Um, well, let's talk about that. You, you like transitioning's hard. Yeah. It's, it's hard getting out of the military, especially when you want to serve it. It's more like you want to fight, you know, like you have this drive to wake up every morning and do something impactful. Mm-hmm. And then all that ceases to exist as an opportunity. You know, whether it's the med board or whatever it may be, like that, that ride is over. Oh yeah. How, how has that affected you? How did that affect you in, in the process knowing it was happening? And then after the fact, like right when you transitioned out, I felt like I had failed and I felt like everything I had done didn't matter anymore. And I was so sad. Like I, you're making I, me sad looking at you. I just oh, want to hug you right now. Is, yeah. I was just so sad. Like I, 
like I had, I had felt like I had made this investment of all these years, you know, total time from time from West Point to time that I was in the military was like 16 years. And I, I had these ideas. I was like, I'm going to, you know, kind of like, I'm going to save the world from death and destruction. It's going to be this every single day, you know, like I wake (laughs) up in the morning and I'm going to do these things and I'm going to like make a difference in the world. And I like, I'm the person for the job, you know, and that was a humbling experience. Like, you know, basically to be told like, yeah, you've got some things and you're kind of fucked up and you need to be like dealing with this stuff. And, um, uh, I, I, I kind of had this, like, I fell apart. Like I, I didn't feel like I had a lot of control over thing. And I kind of got mad, you know, I got mad in the sense that I was like, well, this is shitty. Uh, what do I do now? And I kind of got mad. I wanted to, I was like, all right, well, I'll go to art school. That's going to fix everything. Like, I mean, like, um, well, did you feel, did you feel that way? Because it, because you felt like you couldn't control yourself Um, or it was like a loss of control. Yeah. Because I knew that the stuff that was going on, like I couldn't, there was like, no, there was no fixing it and there was no going back. Like, and I, I mean, you know, I, I, um, I had to just kind of accept that and feeling like where I I was going from being this extremely fit person and being like no issues and not having any problems with stuff to like being on the verge of like a mental breakdown because I'm like, all right, this is like the whole identity that I have had. Like, this is all I've wanted to do. Um, and then just like kind of being at the end of the end of the line. And so do you feel like you were at the bottom of everything you had lived up to that point? You you were, you were bottomed out. Yeah. I felt like, I felt like I was a total failure. I felt like a total failure. And, and, um, there, I, I kind of gone with the art thing because I had, I had done some, I had tried to find some things to like, Oh, it was like, I had somebody tell me like, you need to find an identity outside of the military. And I had found some, you know, I found some hope in art, you know, like art had kind of helped me get through some of these things. And I was like, Oh, you know, I did an apprenticeship with a potter and everything. And I was like, all right, maybe I can do this. And I, I just totally, I just shut everything off. I was like, all right, no more military. I'm just going to just turn it off. And I, I thought I could. And I went to this really rural school in Indiana, Pennsylvania, and I went to art school. And, um, then, oh man, then I, I went through this horrible breakup that was like train wreck of my oh, life. So the breakup happened after. Oh yeah. That happened after, right wow. after I got out of the military. And then, um, and that was when dun, 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 I found Fieldcraft survival and I started listening to the podcast and I was like, I got to get my shit back together. So I, I think it was kind of Which like, podcast was it? Oh, it was the original Fieldcraft Survival. I started listening from like episode one. Sweet. Yeah. So it was like 2018, end of 2018. And I, I was trying, I was trying to find, like, find myself again. And, and I, I, I had no other military people I knew. I had lost my, you know, relationship that we were supposed to get married and all this jazz. And so you're alone. I was alone doing, going to art school with a bunch of people who were like, what's the military? This is like, Oh, you know, like, <laughs> um, so and but, you got you got as a major too, right? Yeah. Wow. So, but I mean, everything turned around, but it was just a matter of like, I needed to have some community because that transition, not having community is really hard. Like, so I needed to be around other people that I could have, I could associate with. And I think one day I saw a post where you had said something or you knew somebody, I was like, no way he knows, he knows like one of my mentors. And that person is like, means the world to me. And like, um, so I think I had reached out to you and I told you that I was like, Oh my gosh, you know, so-and-so. And you were like, yeah. And you actually responded to me. I was like, Whoa. And I hadn't spoken to another military person in how, however long it had probably been almost a year at the, since the time I had been living out there. Maybe how come you don't have me up anymore. I do. Slide up my DMs. You, you have you have like a hundred and fifty thousand followers. You, text, you just text me. I do. Me. I say, Mike, we need to sign. You need to sign paperwork for American contingency, and you're like, uh. I did. I did. Uh, oh crap. I you did. did. A, I did a couple hundred today. That took me thirty minutes. Yeah. That big. That just this. Yeah. So I got a long, long time. To yeah, go. we're signing. We're signing the welcome packets. So how did you? What What would you say? Ultimately, brought you out of this. And then what would you recommend for people who are maybe in similar circumstances, even not tied to the military? Um, I think that find something that helps you. I like find something or someone um, that you can relate to. So maybe it's 
Mike and George from Fieldcraft Survival and you listen to their podcast and you're like, yeah, I, I love this. Like, I, I, I love survival. Like, I want to be listening to and, and talking to somebody or hearing their opinions on what I can do every day to make my life better and, and, and grow as a human being. Because you and George really did a lot of podcasts. And that was back when you were doing the Modern Mindset and, and you were doing um, a lot of stuff with Fieldcraft Survival. And we were talking about all kinds of different like scenarios. Like, what if there's a, um, what was it, EMP goes off? Like, and I was just, I was just eating it up. I would be going going for a run and I'd listen to your podcast because I I just needed something I needed somebody else to be there and so having that um reassurance from you and George and your podcast was really helpful for me and I think it helped me get back up on my feet and say oh hey you know like it's okay you don't have to stay in the military for 20 years and do that if that's what happened you had a transition like you can do other things and still live your life with the same values and the same mindset and go forward and you know, like there's, it's going to be okay. Like you, you, what you used to do doesn't define you for your whole life in the sense that like, if you don't do it anymore, it doesn't mean that you're not still a great person, you know, just cause you're not active duty military anymore. doesn't mean that you're like a piece of garbage. So you, <laughs> you, uh, the, the coolest thing about what you're doing now for Amcon is you have used all your experiences, like that whole life. Mm -hmm. And now, like if you didn't have that experience and didn't apply that experience to what you're doing now, then what we're doing now wouldn't be successful. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have Philcraft if I didn't grind away for 20 years like you did in foreign countries, mm -hmm. sacrificing all the things that we did. And that's not like an egotistical thing. I think that's just a, a comprehension of experience and training and how that ties itself to being kind of above and beyond the norm and mm -hmm. what you receive. So like you, the intelligence as you process it is brought to you by the US Army because those processes that you utilize to make things more efficient and effective and giving specific and um, less smoke and mirrors and, and information and intelligence is so important. That's 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 why it's so good because you are so good. I mean, you were taught you weren't good, you are good, and now you're you're sitting here and you're an employee of American Contingency running all the intel, which we have a meet tomorrow mm -hmm. about how we're going to scale that specifically. Mm -hmm. Because to me, that is American Contingency. Yeah, there's a there's a content aspect, and I try to provide value in the conversation, and then maybe a technical piece of information. But the most important aspect is getting the information that's objective, objective, that allows you to make decisions to better navigate this life. Mm -hmm. and, and that, and we had the opportunity, we had the afforded opportunity that we often took for granted of always having that. Like we get sit rubs and we do summaries and roll ups and AARs and lessons learned and information and intelligence reports that we utilized every single day, um, sometimes in peacetime, mm -hmm. to, to paint the picture or uh, dictate our mission essential task list, to do all these good stuff, and nobody does that anymore. People wake up and are super complacent to life, and they make mistakes, hopefully not catastrophic, and when it does happen, they're just a victim. Like, oh yeah, did you hear about blah, 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 he ran into a protest and got shot, or hey, did you hear about that guy, he, he died in the hurricane. So these things are important and you play the most significant role in that. I mean, without you, technically American contingency wouldn't exist. Well, I'll take that as a compliment, but there's, there's, a, there's two other people that also make it run. We'll say Dustin and Kurt, they make a big difference too. So no, there's three, it, there's three of us. It mends itself together. It's, yeah. They're the opposite. But I mean, what I think Amcon is, is the thing that you are bringing to people because of your experiences. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't have a PFC in here from the National Guard S2. Yeah. I mean, the fact that you're a major, even a West Pointer, and then your experiences and understanding the big picture, mm -hmm. all the way down to the tactical level at Humit and, and SIGINT and everything in between is why we can scale this to the next level. I mean, yeah. we're just scratching the surface because we're depending on you to be the S2 shop. Mm -hmm. Um what we need to do is put you in a position to be the S2 commander and then the J2 commander mm -hmm. to manage all 
of the intel and the processes. Yeah, and I, and I think it's possible. I think we're obviously we're seeing like what kinks we need to work out and how to get better. Um, you know, and I think some people in our audience, our membership, has seen. You know, we we obviously have some things that we can do to get better, but we're aware of that and we're we're working every day to be better. What do you live for? Oh, what do you what gets you up every single morning, and what do you live for? Like, what are the passions you live for? Um, I mean, I, I I'm just. In general, I think I find myself a hap- uh, to be a happy person. I I have uh, you know spiritual beliefs that that kind of are the underline of what I um, have in my life, and that's really important to me. But um, I do feel like what's always kind of run my life and always been in the background, and why I feel like. I've always wanted to do the military and why I want to, you know, be a part of American contingency is being able to make a difference, you know? So there's another, there's two other projects I'm working on that are not related to Fieldcraft Survival or American contingency. And I won't get too far into them, but they're, they're one's a writing project. One's a art project. It's an art project, but it's a, it's a pretty big art project, but it's to help make a difference. Um, Well, you can't talk about them. Well, I can talk about them, but I don't want to like be like, Hey, I'm doing this cool stuff. What what is it? Well, um, one is a book um, and one is a book and that one is, is uh, we're really in the front part. We're at the literary proposal right now. And uh, I've been so, down that road. Yeah, literary proposal, suck. it's tough. But um, I'm working with a, a, an individual that's got 30 years in the Army and 26 years in special operations. And we're working on a, a something that's going to be tailored to, um, you know, women in special operations and, and, um, Oh, you told me a little bit about yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. So that that's one big project. So that that's a huge undertaking. But I want to do it because I want to make a difference. Right. I want to take what I learned, the things that I struggled with, and all the people that I know that are women that have been that are I know these amazing women, right? And I want to take their experiences and put them into the book form and say, hey, this is this is what you can do. This is how you can do it, and it be for both men and women to read and say, oh, this is this actually could work, you know, and not not. It, it's not to be like, you know, f- female, feminist, whatever, go power women. It's like, hey, this is just a reality. Look at how, like, what's reality? I'm going to tell you from women that have served in special operations for more than 20 years that are in the book. And like, they're going to tell you a thing or two. So, you know, um, I've got that going on. And then I've got another project where I'm, I'm doing a proposal for a monument. Um, and it's related to, uh, to um, you know, obviously warfare, but uh, I have the proposal done, but you know, it's is just- Is it a sculpture? Uh, yeah, you could say it's a sculpture. I mean, sculpture is my thing, but- um, Are you gonna sculpt it? No, I have to, if, if I submit the proposal and if it gets approved, then it will become reality. If not, it just becomes a, a thing that I wrote. What does it hinge on? Uh, the, the, Government approval? Uh, yeah. What about finances? Uh, yeah, the, the private funded. So it's, it, but it would be, it would be, um, approved by the board of, you know, like the people that are looking at doing it, but they haven't even, it's not open right now. That stuff is like all in, I'm waiting for the submissions to be authorized. So, um, but it, it it's related to the, the GWAT. So, um, can you talk about it? I mean, I just don't want to be like, Hey, well, what is it? it? It's about, it's about the GWAT. I mean, it's, it's about the, it's about the GWAT. Oh, so it's a global war on terror monument. Yes. I'm, I'm assuming it's massive. Yes. Because we're not talking. Yeah. Okay. We're not talking. We're talking about like the Vietnam Memorial scale. Yeah. So um, I have a proposal written for that. But I mean, obviously, I don't know what's going to happen with that. There's going to be other people that apply. But I I have. Where are you going to put it at? Well, it's it. I'm a man. Now I feel like I'm digging myself into a hole. I I got you now. You did. I did this to myself. Um, I'm it. It it would be in Washington, D.C. Oh, so big like in the plaza or something like that. It would be like a GWAT. Arlington yeah. Cemetery, yeah, Plaza, yeah. So I, I I have a proposal and I'm hoping that I can submit it. Um, you know, whenever that happens, I hope. Well, I hope I didn't just disqualify myself for saying that. But whatever. Well, you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to talk about it. No, I I don't know. I mean, no, no there's no rules about not. You being, intel guys are I, like. No, no, there's no there's no rules that say I can't talk about it. I just don't want to be like that person that's like, well, I'm gonna do this. Well, and no, then, it's cool. We're on a podcast. Yeah, I'm, yeah. Um, so well, you're just talking to me. I'm just talking to you. Yeah. Nobody else is going to listen to this. Nobody They'll be at like, all. Who, they're like, who's Heather? There's two. Skip. Me Next and you, podcast. Me and you will listen to it. So, that, yeah. I'm going to promote this podcast so hundreds of thousands of people listen to it. Oh, no. 
what will they, well, you know, what's good about it though. I, you know, I will say this because I was very hesitant to do this podcast. What I do think is important is cause I don't view myself as like some person that did some amazing thing. And I have just, I have the coolest stories, you know, I'm not a green beret. I'm not, you know, I didn't like kill like 10,000 bad guys, you know, whatever, yeah. the, you know, only 9,000, only 9,000. But, but what it is, what is good is like when you bring people on who are telling stories who are relatable to the general audience so that they can say, you know, now I know who Heather is, or now I know who so-and-so is. And even though they're not, you know, they didn't, I think that it, stories can be interesting, even if they, you know, as long as they're honest and it's the truth. Right. So, um, I could tell you the truth about what I did and I didn't do all the coolest things in the world. I mean, I did do some cool stuff, but like, you know, I'm not, I, I mean, there's always somebody that's cooler than you. Right. So, um, but I think that that was called why, being humble. Though. Yeah. But I think, but I think that's, what's good about it. Right. Because it, it does, you don't have to be, you, you don't have to be the coolest person. I think there was this whole point in the GWAT, right? Remember when like all the Navy SEALs, no offense, Navy SEALs, I love you, but th there was this point where they started writing books and it got like, whoa, you don't want to talk about your military career because if you do, then you're like, what are you trying to do? Who are you trying to be? And so, but I think we've come out of that. Now it's kind of like turning into this thing where we're reflecting on it because we're, we're coming to the end, hopefully, of, of this 19 year war and um, people need to share their stories and kind of talk a little bit about their experiences. And so hopefully this will encourage other people to do that and realize it doesn't matter. Maybe you were an 88, Mike, you, maybe you have something interesting to share. So I, that was why I was like, okay, I'll do it. Well, yeah, I think it's, well, I look at you and I think you're a leader, but I also think that you maybe have forgotten that at some point mm. because of the predicaments and the circumstance in which you live. So when you're empowered, um, whether it's a conversation or just a position, then you realize I have a responsibility. Mm -hmm. And if you're, uh, or one, if you served in the military, I think all veterans, as a sergeant major talking to veterans uh, who don't take me seriously, that's why I throw a sergeant major in there, mm. that you should stand up in your own communities and serve and give back and lead in some way because it's your responsibility. You've been taught. You've been through uh, a lot of trials and tribulations. You sacrifice so much. The least you could do is take all the things that you experienced and learned in whatever, whatever way that was and give it back to people who are desperate in time of needs, which is now to hear somebody's perspective on how to do things better. Mm -hmm. We're not all perfect, right. but what makes you different and perfect in a way is that you have this great journey and experience, good, bad, and different that now you could express, people can listen and go, you know what, man, man my life isn't so bad, man. She's so optimistic and positive. Man, she's got a lot of things to say that are gonna make me change my ways. That's what we did in conversations on podcasts, mm -hmm. which I think in, in, in your story inspired you. Um, and, and I have similar circumstances where I read books, I listened to podcasts, and that got me to get off my ass. And sometimes that's all people need. Mm -hmm. It's just a voice. I'm proud of you. Oh, thanks. I love you. I'm honored to have you as part of American contingency. And I can't wait to figure out tomorrow morning or breakfast. That, that, did that sound weird? Well, no, it's not weird because we have, we have people. We, we're going to actually have breakfast. Because there's a group of, so everybody knows, there's a group of Intel analysts and uh, one of uh, the comms guys is going to be here. Hamcon, we call it. Hamcon is going to be here. This is call sign. And uh, it's going to be a great conversation, I think, because we're going to be able to really have a conversation in person. It's difficult to be able to coordinate across so many different regions. I can't wait. Yeah, it'll, and we're I gonna have be great. A, my blackboard, which is actually a black board, and you write with white dry erase. So awesome. It's like a whiteout pen, but it's a dry erase. We'll be here at 2 p.m. and we're putting that up right there, and we will map the world on how we scale your side of Amcon. Mm -hmm. I'm excited. Um, major medically retired. Heather Kaiser, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Mike. Why'd you say it like that? Um, well, uh, thank you, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> All right, bye. <laughs>